my horse got killed or, or, or like needed reviving i rode you know hours and hours across the map in two directions just to get a tranquilizer to come back and revive him and then i realized i didn't need to because you walked into a stables got a new horse yeah you're playing red dead redemption <laughs> just steal a horse but i was more con- concerned about my saddle than the horse i don't want to lose all my stuff on the horse's saddle that's so you fair, take the saddle it? off and take it with you I or take some of the stuff out of the saddle what have you, you, it's like you've never played grand theft auto is it by the same stole, guys I, I stole a horse to ride all the way to a town to go to a general store to get tranquilizer thing to come back <laughs> and, and revive the horse <laughs> the most civilized person to ever play red dead redemption <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode eight of Keeping On Track. I'm Bradley Williams. And I'm Adam Heath. And this week we're back to normal. Uh, Adam had his moment in the sun. And uh, for fear that I was trying to uh, abdicate responsibility of a podcast to him, I've I've stepped back in like a knight in shining armour to uh, take the lead once more. Did we get any feedback? Did we get? Get any reviews of the the episode? Um, on the did we get any feedback? No. That, I mean, no. that sounds like a no. <laughs> no pretty clear no. No one cared that Adam did the podcast. I don't think anyone okay. cares anyway. <laughs> no, well, I enjoyed. Myself. Yeah, you had fun. I had fun. Um, that that was the most important part. And so we're restoring natural order, and it's funny. That we're restoring natural order this week because guess what i watched at the weekend what did you watch what have i been watching you know bradley you've been watching jurassic park there you go so i've, I've we now got all the way to the last film jurassic world fallen kingdom so i'm fully up to date on that series uh watched that over the weekend and uh yeah that just made me think of it when you talked about natural order being restored as is in jurassic world fallen kingdom the natural order has been restored but let me just say something here. So I, I gave you a recommendation for a stunning movie to watch this weekend that we're going to talk about in a little while. And after that conversation, you're going to be absolutely beside yourself that you've missed out on such a great movie. And you missed on out on that movie just to watch Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom, which is possibly not just one of the worst Jurassic Park films ever made, possibly one of the worst films ever made. Like, I don't know anyone that's watched that movie that hasn't immediately wanted to take a hot shower and, and like, scored themselves for delving into that absolute drivel for two hours. I can't, I can't fathom how it got commissioned. I mean, I can because it was clearly going to make a lot of money, and it did, but, you know, as long as everyone who was involved in the making of that knew it was just a popcorn, you know, make some money movie. There's just no artistic credibility in that film whatsoever. It's it's heartbreaking, really. It's, it is genuinely just absolute dross. Like, I can't, for the life of me, remember a single scene that made sense, was entertaining, a single character that I liked. I, the whole thing is just, like, honestly, that would be our first zero-star film if we put that on this list. That would be a film that we li- I literally yeah. refuse to give any points to. Do you know what one thing that, that could have redeemed it, that I'm not saying it would have, but it, it, it could have had a, a small redemptive quality. Um, I, I actually quite enjoyed Jurassic World. It was a bit of mm-hmm. fun, a bit of a laugh. It was never on, for me, the, the first Jurassic Park stands head and shoulders above the rest. But at least in Jurassic World, I felt the score was cracking. It was a really nice score, mm-hmm. some nice themes, nice motifs, building on the original. Even... This film we just watched, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, even the score to me was nothing. There's just nothing there. I'm, 
I I couldn't believe how little there was uh, to kind of be excited by as a film fan in in that movie. It, it, it is pretty tragic as a film, but you're right. I think Jurassic World was okay because it sort of it hit enough of the nostalgia points to allow itself through, yeah. just through the grace of that and, to be admirable, like enjoyable. And honestly, it did the obvious story thing. Yeah. It said, you know what, twenty years have passed or whatever. They would have, they would have got that right. They would actually have gone back and probably got, eventually got that park working. And that to me made sense. There wasn't a massive leap of faith there. It wasn't like, oh, that's implausible. And actually, they probably would have figured it out eventually and got it going. Yeah. This movie, no logic whatsoever. I'm just completely baffled that these folks are getting paid. They get money to write this stuff. Someone came up with that concept. Someone said, I love it. Let's go and write it. Someone, multiple people probably wrote it, signed it off. Directors directed, producers produced, and, and that's what we end up with. It's, it's just criminal. It's madness. And then someone thought, you know what we really need? We need a third instalment in this story because everyone's dying to watch where this story ends up, which is the bigger tragedy, I think. There's some really interesting interviews I've read in the last day or two with, um, who's the director? Um, is it Bayona or something? Yeah, J.A. Bayona. So basically between him and and was Jurassic World Trevor Morrow or something? Yes. Colin Colin Trevor Trevor Regardless, between the two of them there was there was some statements made about how they're excited about the mythology they're creating and they see Jurassic World possibly as a Star Wars thing where you'll have spin-off series and different movies in different directions, as though we're gonna have twenty-five more things from from that series in the next 10 years different directors are going to come in i just can't fathom how that's possible mm. i really i really can't um you could literally have left jurassic park as that one first movie and i'd have been a happy man we didn't need any of the rest of it <laughs> well it, i mean the fallen kingdom made 1.3 billion at the box office so a studio executive will look at that and go oh this movie made tons of money but I think the what it doesn't take into account is is the the people that go in earnest thinking they're going to have fun and then say, "Ay, hey, this is this is an awful movie. I shan't be watching that again." So it's that there's almost there's that weird thing, isn't there, with box office figures of just because a film does well at box office, it doesn't mean anyone wants to see any more of it. It just means everyone's gone and it's whole like once bitten twice shy type thing, you know. But um, I mean, it's. Yeah. It's got forty-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which to me seems ridiculously generous. So there you go. I missed out on an incredible film you wanted me to watch, uh, to watch Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, and it is a mistake. I appreciate. Um, it can just feel like homework sometimes when you ask me to watch a movie, and, and you've, you've got a history as a teacher. Obviously, you were a teacher at one point. I feel like I'm being given homework. <laughs> Seven minutes. So I rebelled. <laughs> I rebelled this weekend, as I've rebelled every week so far. <laughs> And unless I happen to already see the movie, I'm just not going to watch it. Well, like a like a an insolent schoolchild, you know, you've you've rebelled and you've learned your lesson. So you know, I was only trying to help you. I was trying to do, you know, for your own good. I uh, I forgive you, and uh, our friendship shall um, weather that storm. Give us an intro. I, I, I'm not I'm not even sure what we're talking about this week. Give us an intro to the topic, and then and then we can get to the movie. Uh, yes, yeah, so the topic for today uh, is is going to be the power of narrative, and the and the, and the way we tell stories or the way um, we depict things in the day to day running of a business, whether that be the it could be 
revisionists. So the way we look back at something and, and, and the story that we have to tell about how a project went, whether that be through marketing, whether that be through um, trying to tell others about your business initiatives or things that you're trying to achieve, or whether you're pitching something to your boss or to a client, the way that that will be received, the way that will be remembered, and the impact that that has on people. So essentially, we're talking about the power of narrative. Cool. I guess we'll bring in our guests. Um, so our guest this week is uh, Lee Phelan. He is a data scientist by day and uh, an author and podcaster by night. Uh, he has some books. One of them is called Science Fictions. There's another book called Half Welder. And uh, he runs a podcast called My Cousin Jane, which is all about Jane Austen. And uh, we're going we're gonna to bring Lee in and we're going to talk to him a little bit about narrative in the workplace and also about our film this week. So, uh, Lee, welcome. Good morning. Morning. Thank you. <laughs> well, is it about eight, eight o'clock in the morning where you are? Yeah. Yeah, it's bright and early on this side of the pond. <laughs> I, we feel very privileged that the first thing you've done this morning is wake up and talk to us. <laughs> oh, the pleasure is mine. <laughs> Let's just hope it doesn't set a tone for the day. <laughs> I do, I do have promised Lee too much, Brad, because there's not these normally meandering conversations. It's not going to be anything life-changing for him. <laughs> Definitely. Tell us a little bit about your your job as a uh, as an author. How did you get into that? Yeah, so I've just always enjoyed storytelling, um, kind of probably since I've been in school, in primary school. And so I never really knew how to do it right. And then kind of over the years, I came across different uh, resources for learning how to write stories, how to you know compose a narrative, how to refine a plot, how to develop characters. And so I started to approach it kind of more systematically. Um, and then it's just always been something I've, you know, with the other jobs I've had that I've been able to kind of do on the side, not anything that I've done full time as far as um, kind of fiction writing. But I found that one of the things that really attracted me to data science was uh, kind of the fact that what we're doing in data science is we're really telling stories based on data. And so there's a lot of correlations between what we do in data science and what we you know, what I do, writing books, writing fiction. And your kind of, your sort of speciality, as it were, or specifically with your writing, seems to be at the moment a lot of sci-fi and science fiction, um, that sort of area. Is is that something that you find yourself most drawn to then? Or is it just that you had an idea and it just happened to to kind of match up to that area? Yeah, no, it, it is. I think what I'm most drawn to is science fiction, particularly kind of the middle grade young adult science fiction and I, because i think there's a lot of potential there for teaching science in a narrative structure uh, that was kind of the idea behind science fiction was you've got all these really interesting things happening in science research but uh, it's really inaccessible to a lot of audiences that don't already have a pretty strong background in those areas whereas with a good science fiction novel you know a good an author can kind of portray or get across an idea that's based on real science pretty easily as part of the narrative flow of the story. And also, as we mentioned earlier, you have a podcast, My Cousin Jane. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I write science fiction, but I don't read a ton of science fiction. I really like um, kind of 
what we consider the Western classics um, of literature. And uh, foremost among those, I really like Jane Austen novels. It was a simpler time, at least simpler if you were kind of in the upper to middle upper class of life. It wasn't very simple for the poor people. Yeah. But it, it's, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of really interesting backstory that Jane Austen uh, novels have in them that kind of in, have the ability to I guess, enrich it or deepen your understanding and appreciation of the story. And so My Cousin Jane explores a lot of those things. And why is it called My Cousin Jane? Uh, so I was doing some genealogy research and discovered that Jane Austen is actually my cousin. Oh. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I mean, at, to be fair, as I mentioned on the on the podcast, she's probably everyone's cousin, right? At some point, <laughs> she's like my eighth cousin, nine times removed or something. Sure. But yeah, it just seemed like a clever name for the title. Yeah. Wow, look at that. We've got some literary royalty in our midst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that's kind of her style. Like, she wouldn't have said... Uh, you know, like even if if I were talking to you, like if Brad and I had the same father, I wouldn't say our father. Jane mm -hmm. Austen would have always said my father, even if she were talking to her sister. So right. It's just kind of the style of writing. So um, do you get any royalties from, from any of the Austen estate or are you kind of left out on the periphery being, you know, such you, a... You know, I'm, I'm left out. I, there's sucks. probably some like patents I have to submit to somebody <laughs> that I haven't tracked down yet. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I know we haven't given you tons of information about what we're doing here today, and that, that's kind of my style. Um, but the um, the general rule of thumb with the show is that we will talk about a topic relating to businesses, and then we'll try to tie that back into to a film. And so this week, obviously, as you know, the reason that you're here is because we're talking about narrative within businesses and how we can use narrative to um, to to do a variety of things. And I'm going to spend the majority of today's podcast butchering various Japanese words um, and various Japanese names. So I apologize for that in advance. And the movie that I wanted to tie that back into is a movie called Harakiri. And uh, it's a... Um, it's a Chambara uh, movie from the 60s. So Chambara movies are samurai films from uh, the Ch Japanese cinema from the 1960s. Well, they're not just from the 1960s, but this film is from 1962. And it's directed by Masaki Kobayashi. And it tells the story of Hanshiro Sugumo, who's a ronin from a previously dismantled clan. And he one day um, takes himself to the courtyard uh, of a palace of, of a different clan um, called the Ii clan and has to sit with um, the senior counsel there, Kageyu Saito, and he begins to tell him that he wants to commit harakiri um, at, 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 the, at the palace, and that as part of the Bushido Code, Samurai Code, um, it's often a, a case that if you have a disgraced samurai or a samurai who is unable to work and finds himself in a position where he no longer wishes to, to live uh, in a dishonorable way, uh, wishes to die with Simona and will commit Harakiri in the palace forecourt. And um, as he does that, he and Saito begin to tell each other stories. And during these discussions, during the storytelling, uh, they realize that their paths have crossed and uh, that their, their histories are somewhat intricately, intricately linked. 
and uh, the film is, is is absolutely stunning. Now, I I stumbled upon this film uh, late last year. I was going through a bit of a, um, a Chambara phase and was watching a lot of uh, Kurosawa and and things like that. And and this movie got mentioned in a list of of of, of great movies. And and I watched it and um, was so blown away by it that I literally texted my wife. Um, I was on a plane at the time, and I texted my wife off when I got off the plane. I said, I'll watch one of the best films of my life. Um, oh, and FYI, I landed safely. And, and it was, and it was just one of those things where I was so just enamored with this film from the off. And uh, it's, it's such a wonderful film, but the, 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 the central conceit is that literally you just have two, two individuals telling each other stories, but the way they tell the stories, the, the, the way in which they choose to uh, divulge information creates tension it creates fear, it creates sadness, it creates um, a, a variety of emotions. Um, and it's just a it's just a stunning, stunning film. And so that's uh, that's the that's why I've chosen that movie today. And and I, and I know Adam hasn't seen it. And Lee, I'm going to assume you haven't seen it either, unless you jump in and say, no, I actually watched it. And I loved it as well. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of talk of, about the film at various points today. Um, but uh Adam, I just I wondered if we could maybe jump in with you here because I, uh, if there's anything that Adam loves more than spreadsheets, it's storytelling, um, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 uh, I know that Adam obviously telling stories is a big part of what we do. But what are some of your thoughts or opinions around like how narrative can be used in a, in a day to day corporate environment? Oh man, you throw me in the deep. <laughs> Um, before we started this podcast, I didn't even know we were talking about storytelling. So, I mean, you've already you've said so much in your intro, mm. whether it makes the cut or not. Yeah. Um, that there are stories to be told uh, on a day-to-day basis. I, I guess I most think about storytelling. You, you reflected on uh, kind of retrospective storytelling, the stories of what happened. I I really think of storytelling as the future, painting the picture for where an organization's going for its own people more than anyone else. There's absolutely the argument that storytelling can be part of marketing and part of painting a vision for a corporation or an organization. For me, when I think about storytelling, I'm thinking about the the driving, the motivation of, of the team, you know, helping them understand the narrative of where we're going and, uh, and kind of, this is perhaps just personal to me, but I, I see it that we are writing our own story every day. You know, so what what are we doing with the story today? Where are we taking our story and how are we adding to the story in a positive way mm. um, and how it intercuts with other people's stories? Because each person we're working with has their own story, their own narrative of their life, if you like. Uh, and certainly in a business context, the narrative of their work. And where do we fit into that? And how do we influence and shape it and, and have a positive kind of influence? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And obviously, Lee, you were mentioning earlier on that... Um, you you feel that sometimes uh, stories are the best way to sh- to share information and to get people excited about things and and i guess that as a as a lecturer as a teacher um is do you find that that that's something that you rely on a lot especially as somebody who's a natural storyteller uh, as an instinct as well yeah i think that you know one of the things you mentioned in your intro is that stories really have this power to kind of connect us emotionally to a situation uh, in a way that just pure facts don't. Um, you know, I can 
I can tell you the statistics behind a certain tragedy, or I can tell you the statistics behind, uh, you know, a certain event that ha- took place in history. But, you know, that's kind of, I don't know, a, a white room approach to it, you know, a kind of, um, you know, sanitized version of what happened. But if, if you tell a story, especially the story from the point of view of someone who is involved or who lost their life as part of the tragedy, suddenly you start to build this, this empathy connection with them and it becomes much more real. I think um, in some respects, the telling is what brings humanity to it. You know, the facts are, we can't influence the facts are the facts, but the telling, the, the, the exploration of those facts is what adds a kind of hum, human touch, if you like, human perspective or feeling um, and, and can change. The person doing the telling can intimately change that story uh, using the same set of facts because of the decisions they make and how they tell it, how they explore it. Um, so there's, I think there's, there's great power and uh, great responsibility as well in, in how you tell your story. Mm. And, and motivation can play quite a key role as well in the way that we tell stories or why we tell stories. So in the film, there are, first of all, I'm, there are some spoilers involved in this podcast. So if you if you don't want that the movie to be spoiled, go watch it first. And um, there are there are maybe like three, you could probably boil it down to there are three stories that are being told in the in the film and the central story the one that um uh hanshiro sugomo tells could very easily have been summed up in you've you've ruined my family i'm here for revenge it could literally have been that you know those two but he builds this narrative up and he gets the the whole he gets um saito and and everybody in in the um in the the whole of this palace around him he gets an audience he's he's got their undivided attention as he gradually tells the story bit by bit by bit and then he gets to to a a minor punchline where he unveils one piece of information then he gets to another punchline where he involves another piece of information and then he gets to his big punchline which is that right and now I'm here for vengeance and you're all going to die. And I've done this, this and this, and I've disgraced this person. And it starts to unveil all this information. And it has this huge impact because what he's trying to do is he's, if he just turned up and said, I'm here for vengeance, he would either get killed or, you know, he, he would be limited in what he can achieve. But by drawing everyone in with this narrative, what what he does is he does something that's even better because he, although he doesn't obtain vengeance by the end of the movie, what he does do is something much worse which is that he undermines everything that this entire clan has, has built its code on, this samurai code, this honor code. He's, he's completely undermined it and showed it for what it for what a farce it actually is. And I think that's the power of storytelling, is that you can get under so many layers with a good with a story and, and why, with a narrative that people will you you can actually undercut a lot of concerns or you can head off a lot of worries or um, you can actually stop people from losing track of what they're trying to achieve because that that narrative structure gives people something to focus on. Um, So I I think that an an example of that might be in in the day-to-day is that um, if, if, for example, your company is going through financial struggles and you have to do some layoffs, the the story that you tell people will have a much more last will have a, a lasting impact uh, if it's done correctly and then and the actual layoffs themselves although hard although difficult will be received 
in a much more memorable and and actually probably cordial way than just saying we've got no money we need to sack a load of people you know i i think that one of the things you mentioned you know the uh the punchline of the story i think this is kind of a key to what uh what the power of stories are in these contexts because you know if i come at you with some statistics and say something like oh we've got to you know like you mentioned with the layoffs we have to lay off this many people because sales are at this percent and blah 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 there's something about human nature that when you're approached with statistics that conflict with your worldview, your instinct is to use anecdotal evidence to attempt to invalidate all the statistical evidence. Uh-huh. And you'll say something, well, yeah, but, or, well, actually, you know, you kind of lead off with these thoughts. But an interesting paradox of stories is that I can come to you with a story about a single instance, a single individual, and you'll be listening to this story with a, you know, through the lens of your worldview, with a certain set of expectations and beliefs. And then this moment will come where you can reveal information in the story that you're invested in. And suddenly this shifts how your entire view of what's going on and it can have a big impact on your worldview and the way you see things. You know, if you look at, you know, all the, the Black Lives Matters movement in the United States right now, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not like uh, the statistics of institutional racism have suddenly changed over the last few weeks. Like those have been pretty constant. But what's changed is suddenly people are telling stories about people who are impacted by mm-hmm. institutional racism. And this creates more of an awareness. And what's kind of the paradox here is that suddenly, as we would ignore large bodies of statistical evidence based on our own individual anecdotal evidence, suddenly a story, which is by definition anecdotal evidence, usually just of a single person, will kind of draw us in hmm. and allow us to kind of make this shift in a way that mathematics and statistics will never be able to accomplish. Mm. With the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, let's use that because it is very topical and it is very current. And I'm not going to try and get too political with this, but there are very obvious subversive behaviours that are taking place from, um, seemingly taking place from some government organisations. And those things are being shown and exposed on social media. Um, And I think that what's happening is because we have the ability to to see that that falls into the narrative that falls into the story and then that and then that helps shape people's views of the struggle rather than looking at and going okay so you have two you have a a group of activists warring with the police what you actually see now is you see potentially a government trying to suppress a a socio-economic change and and that and that completely alters people's perspective of the situation and then pushes them to be more active in in being a part of the solution and so i think you're right lee is that it actually when people invest in the humanity of it they they do more and that investment that humanity comes from understanding the narrative that's being told yeah and you know i think it was george rr R. martin who said that um a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. Mm. And so, you know, kind of the more stories that you 
come in contact with, the more narratives that you experience, it kind of it, it, it enlarges your worldview in a way that allows you to, to really appreciate other perspectives. And I think this is so important for business because, you know, it, when you're developing a product or trying to market something, you have a certain perspective as the person who is developing the product. But, and I can, you know, come to a business and say, you should adopt this product or this practice or hire us to do the service because here are all the facts, you know, we'll increase revenue by this percent, we'll cut costs, we'll, you know, increase your margin, things like this. And that can be good and true, but it's, I just think it's so much more powerful when you come to someone and say, here's a story of a company who is in a similar situation to yours and, and what we did and how we approached it. Mm. And as you un, kind of let that story unfold, suddenly the listener starts to develop their own connections and their own conclusions that maybe aren't even explicitly said in the story. And I think we've all experienced that with books or films that we've kind of consumed that we kind of make our own connections to the characters and come to our own kind of parallels between what's happening in the story and what's happening in our own lives. Mm, mm. I also think storytelling is, is the most natural um, experience for all of us. We've, we've, we've been told stories from birth, basically, as children. And we've, we've told stories, and, and Lisa said something just then about when, when you, tell, you talk about an example uh, in a business of, of, a, of a success story, you are telling a story without even necessarily thinking that you might be. Um, so I think for organizations, organizations that that don't think they need a storytelling kind of culture or, or that it, it's relevant to them just by having day-to-day interactions you are telling stories meaning to or not probably uh, and the more you kind of think about the way you, you tell those stories the, the more kind of impact you can have if you have a little bit of consideration to the kind of you know textual fabric of the story the, the, the structure the way you're presenting it and what it might mean to someone um, you can have the biggest kind of influence I guess. Mm. So, so let's flip this on its head for a second. Then, uh, in in Harakiri, the the film begins with a voiceover, and it's almost like a noir kind of detective noir thing where you've got this this voice kind of saying, "Today this happened," and and it's a journal entry, and then the film finishes in the same journal entry, um, and it's and it's from um, from Saito, and what we find out is that. This whole event, this this whole thing that happens throughout the movie, they they try to literally write it out of their own history. So there's this wonderful moment. So as a quick aside, uh, Yoshi, um, Yoshio uh, Miyajami's cinematography of this film is absolutely stunning. And and if you ever want to know what a good film looks like, you should watch it for that reason alone. But there's these opening uh, series of establishing shots that kind of show the cleanliness the symmetric symmetrical elements the uh, the quiet of this of this palace and by the end of the movie it's covered in it's covered in blood it's been destroyed you know windows and doors have been knocked over um there are swords sticking in walls um and and the they have to quickly kind of clear it all up and so the the wider point here is about sometimes there's a penchant for rewriting the history of 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 how project went or rewriting our, our company's history at a certain point if we don't like the way something went or trying to if we're trying to tell somebody why something failed we we try to spruce up the story a little bit to make it more tangible or you know less damning is that 
is that acceptable behavior or 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 is integrity more important in the stories we tell yeah that's a great question i mean it's it's really easy to point to people who've done it wrong right Mm. you know organizations that have that have had news or had events take place kind of publicly and very much seems to be uh we've been caught we kind of knew this was going to happen and here are kind of list of excuses about why um and i think that what was mentioned about motivation i think maybe adam mentioned motivation behind your story and i think that that's i think that's something that people can feel you know, if there are so many, you know, retellings and reboots are really popular in film, right? Mm-hmm. Especially right now. Um, and I think that there's, you can take the same set of facts and tell so many different stories about it that having your motivations be really clear and be really upfront and honest and transparent and almost, you know, kind of the cliche term of vulnerability. Um, and especially for an organization, I think that no one really expects an organization or a set of individuals to be uh, perfect in their execution or, you know, completely faultless in their products or their services. But the way that you portray what happened, uh, the way that you tell that story, that apologetic story, I think really is going to make or break future customer relationships. It's interesting, Brad, because um, having not seen the film, I'd, I, I don't know if, if I'm understanding your explanation properly, but it sounds like you're saying in the film, you see people telling stories to each other. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so so th- there are flashbacks and, and they begin to tell the story and then it goes to a flashback. But the, the, the bulk of the story is, is essentially, I, I think as a, as a modern comparative, I can imagine that, that I don't know, but I would imagine that Quentin Tarantino has seen, seen this film and, and loves this film because it feels like the same sort of thing of people just telling stories because that's essentially what film is anyway it's you've got two people in a room or two people on a staircase or two people most of the time these people talking but but this is very much people telling each other stories uh, and and you're right that's that's almost something that tarantino does so well isn't it he has characters have conversations that mirror the conversations we all have of each other people tell each other stories mm. they're, they're talking in a very kind of informal way um, I think that's interesting. This, this movie focuses on the on on the the the, the form of storytelling from one person to another, mm-hmm. and uh, you're definitely selling me on needing to watch it. So I, <laughs> I promise I will. Good, good. <laughs> when you when you when you start to tell a story, and you give so in a in a corporate environment, say when you're trying to explain why you're doing what you're doing, or why something is happening, or why you're about to go in a direction you're going by encasing that in a structured narrative you are giving people something to invest in so that then what happens is that your conclude your story your conclusion of your story your your third act your final moments become a goal become something to aspire to and actually help people become clear on where they they want to take that as well so so whether that's to say oh we're going to change the direction of our company we're going to change the way we we operate and this is where we would like to go and these are some of the reasons why and these are and this is where we've been in the past and this is where we're trying to head to and this is where i we see you all playing a a role in that and and these some of the changes that you're going to notice in the coming weeks and months but we know that they're going to be for our betterment because of X, Y, Z. And you, and you start to really sort of see it and you go, you read that and go, okay, so I understand that in six months time, we're going to be here 
and I can play my part in that by doing the X, Y, and Z. So you really give people a reason to continue on that journey with you. Yeah, and I think that that's something I've noticed as a teacher is, you know, I'll walk into a classroom, I've got 30 or 40 students in there, uh, different levels of interest, different levels of commitment. You know, I'll start giving a lecture or discussing something or illustrating a point and, you know, half of them are still working on last night's homework. A few others are kind of busy on social media and a few are, are kind of paying attention, but especially if it's an after lunch class, you know, things get a little dicey. Uh, as far as attentiveness. But then if I switch gears and I start saying something like, now let me tell you about a time uh, in the workplace where I use this. And then I launch into a story. Uh, suddenly that draws everyone in. Mm. Um, there's something just kind of inviting and non-threatening about beginning a story that, that pulls people's attention in. And I think that part of it is because since I'm telling a story about a place where these people, where these students eventually want to end up, where they see themselves being successful, I think that there's real power in that because they want to see themselves in this story. They want to imagine how they would react in the story. Mm. And when you look at, you know, these, a lot of the really popular self-help books and things like that, a lot of them are kind of the wish fulfillment escapist sort of narrative where I'm going to tell you a story that one day could be your story. Mm. And this is what kind of draws people in. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're basically taking someone by the hand, aren't you? And saying, come with me. This is, this is the direction we're going to go. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, and it's my story. It's my perspective. And that's what makes it interesting. Um, and I think you're inviting people to, to kind of to, to give something of themselves, I guess, to emotionally invest, as we've said throughout this, this conversation, to invest their own interests into your story, into the characters, into uh, what you're going to discover as, as you go. And I think that a lot of people want to be able to tell their, their own story. And a lot of really effective presenters will kind of draw people in in that way, almost even if the people aren't actually telling a story, but the presenter can structure the narrative in a way that it suddenly becomes their story and it makes them feel like their story is being heard and understood and it starts to become a very emotional experience yeah and, and that features you know that features quite heavily in things like one-to-ones and team meetings and you know get get that get if you're talking to someone else get them to tell you a story so you can you can start to build those bridges of empathy and understanding uh, and, and it makes, like you say, Lee, it makes them feel invested then because the narrative is no longer about you or the company. The narrative is then about them as individuals. And everyone's interested in their own story, right? <laughs> you're the central protagonist, unless you're the villain of your own story, in which case I guess you probably <laughs> you don't want to know that one. But yeah. Well, well, and I think that that last point you mentioned, this is kind of one of the... Uh one of the the unwritten rules or perhaps it's written somewhere of fiction writing is that good villains always think they're the hero of their own story <laughs> that's what makes a believable villain yeah so i guess if you see someone walking around with purple skin and a big golden glove um trying to snap their fingers uh you should be wary of them but um other than that yeah is that a film reference is <laughs> that a film I haven't seen? He's yeah, you're, yeah. Guy with gold yeah, he's, he's, it's he's, a really niche kind of subgenre. Yeah, right? I mean, there's, there's <laughs> this little, there's this little tiny 
franchise called the Avengers franchise. You might not have heard of it, but uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Spend less time watching but Jurassic hey, Park franchise. And <laughs> but how interesting that that's a lovely little kind of uh, side note to this conversation that. Um, for sure um i'm in a minority i've checked out of watching those movies but i'm now missing out on a kind of storytelling form mm-hmm. as, as i've always joked with you stuff passes me by in conversations with you all the time mm-hmm. because you're making references uh that, that fly past me i don't even know there was a reference made sometimes um so that's interesting isn't it we can have uh some shared experiences but we can also have very different experiences that changes uh how we tell the stories and communicate with each other yeah and i refuse to give you the theatrical cut of my conversations, you just get the director's cut with all the scenes in it that make no sense to you. (laughs) Well, and I think that that last point you made, Adam, is something that stories can do for an organization. They can give an organization a shared culture and a shared vocabulary and a shared set of experiences to draw upon when they're trying to, uh, you know, bring bring up a point, you know, instead of saying, we care about quality, you know, you can say, well, remember, you know, this aspect of the story we shared, you know, we want to focus on that. And I think that that shared culture and vocabulary can be really powerful in building kind of unified company culture. Yeah, that's great. Well, well, Lee, thank you so much for, um, for joining us today. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. And yeah, it's uh, been fun. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, people will be quite keen to, to maybe read one of your books or, or catch up with your podcast so if are you still are you still operating the podcast or is that kind of taking a bit of a hiatus for the minute uh so yeah it's still operating i'm getting ready to release uh, i kind of release episodes in batches so um there should be another batch of episodes here in the next week great and it's and it's called my cousin jane and we can get that on most podcast outlets um, can we yep you should be able to find it on apple or spotify uh, Stitcher, all the normal places. Well, we have uh, we have a, a, a slight tradition here on the show where at the end of every episode, Adam asks me what I think about the movie. Um, and I, I don't think that we need to do that this week because I think, Adam, you can probably guess what number I'm going to give Harry Kiri, right? Well, traditionally, I asked Brad what score out of five he would give a movie, and he says four every single week. So it's probably a four. <laughs> might be a 4.5 because, you know, he... he He's excited about this movie. He mentioned Tarantino as well. He's, he's clearly enjoyed I'm going to give it a five, actually. Like, I love this movie. Yeah, I love this movie, five. honestly. Yeah. I love this movie. I, I, I've this yet is to... a landmark episode. I'm honoured <laughs> to have been on a podcast where Brad gives a movie a five. It's, it's a small cluster of movies. But I genuinely watched this and I thought, you know what, I need to look up Kobayashi and, and see what other films he's done. And and, and even you know even the guy that plays um, Sugomo... Uh, I think his name's Tatsuya uh, Nakadai. Is he, he, the guy is amazing? He's like the Denzel Washington of 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 of, of Chambara movies. He's just he's so he's so good, and he's so he's got so much gravitas. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a great movie, absolutely brilliant. So so you guys, I know you know you've you've had it spoiled Lee, by Wikipedia and me and Adam. As always, I love to spoil a movie for you, but um, yeah, it's it's just worth seeing. You've got to see it.